The following interview contains some colorful language, very familiar to people working in marketing and sales, but probably not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. This is Randy Frisch, author of Fuck Content Marketing, Focus on Content Experience to Drive Demand, Revenue, and Relationships. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas in order to succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. This show is produced by my marketing firm. We work with manufacturers to help them grow. If you're a manufacturer and are serious about growing your business, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide at the top of the organic results. And special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is a really cool app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners where you can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Randy Frisch to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Fuck Content Marketing, Focus on Content Experience to Drive Demand, Revenue, and Relationships, published by Lioncrest. Randy Frisch is the CMO and co-founder of Uberflip, a content experience platform that helps marketers to create better content experiences at every stage of the buyer's journey. Randy is also the host of Connex, the Content Experience Show podcast, and was named one of the top 50 fearless marketers in the world by Marketo. And, interesting fact, he is one of the five people on the planet who is not a Star Wars fan. Randy, congratulations on fuck content marketing, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks a lot, Douglas. Usually I've got to start with you know making sure for your listeners that I can drop an F-bomb, but you've cleared that path, and, and now we can get to the meat of that that statement at some point here. Yes, well, I want you to feel safe and welcome. Um, I've heard from a lot of listeners, and they're apparently very familiar with this kind of language. And I just want to say that um, when I saw that you were one of five people that's not a big Star Wars fan that you mentioned in your book, is it related to something else? I thought, oh, I, I might be one of the other... <laughs> The other four. I don't dislike Star Wars, but it's just not. It's like um, it, it's sort of like the Grateful Dead. You just have to be really, really, really passionate in order to. Yeah, you're to, either in or you're not, right? I mean, like I, I have my, 
I don't even know if you call it geekiness or whatever it is. Like I, I, I love Marvel movies. Uh, you know, that, that hooks me in and I'll, I'll go see all those the moment they come out with, with or without my kids. Uh, but, uh, but I don't know. Star Wars never did it for me, but that, that doesn't mean I don't see the, the value of it. Right. It's, yeah. it's like music. It's, you open up a, you know, an app to listen to music, be it Apple or Spotify or whatnot. I don't think that there's bad music on there. I just think that there's, you know, stuff that we like and stuff that we don't. And that's where things, things in our life are just getting so personalized that we should start to expect to enjoy the stuff that we love. Yeah. So now at this point, Randy, um, we've run off uh, everyone who doesn't like foul language in Star Wars. So for those few people that are left um, listening, <laughs> what I wanted to ask was, has the title of your book prevented you now from speaking at various content marketing conferences? That's that's actually a funny question. Uh, so it hasn't prevented me. Uh, I, first of all, I'll explain that I'm not against content marketing. Uh, when I say fuck content marketing, I'm not suggesting you should stop doing content marketing or that it's a waste of money or anything like that. I mean, we can unpack more what I mean by that um, in terms of how content marketing just doesn't get to its end point very often for mm-hmm. us. Um, but, you know, the funny thing to, to answer your question, one of my good friends uh, was very involved in starting Content Marketing Institute, uh, which is, for those unfamiliar, it's, it's a great resource. They have great events like Content Marketing World. They have their their website at, con- at Content Marketing Institute. So at CMI, uh, a guy named Robert Rose, who's still very involved in the company after they've sold to UBM, uh, he asked me to speak at Content Tech, which is a event that they did. It was only a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And I submitted my my talk track, which right now is, you know, has the book title in there. And he, he wrote back to me. He's like, so I want you in, but you can't have that as the subject. <laughs> as, as, he's like, we've got to We've got to get clever here. He's like, once they're in the room, you can explain yourself. You can drop that F-bomb as much as you want. He's like, because I know what you mean, but we can't let people think that you're saying the content marketing isn't worth it. So we we ended up settling on a, on a different uh, talk title. Uh, and it was, if I recall, it was, is your content winning or losing you deals? Which there you I, go. I think is... You know, something we'll probably end up talking about today, Douglas. Yeah, absolutely. And so Robert Rose, he was on the podcast a while back about his, the content experience book that he wrote with um, Carla Johnson. And yep. and then uh, Joe Polizzi is a member of the Marketing Book Podcast Three Timers Club. So Randy, two more books and you're in, man. You'll- <laughs> nice, nice. It's like an SNL uh, jacket type of situation. That's right. That's right. It's a secret society. Yeah, yeah. So Randy, I just got to say, reading the book, it was a great content experience. See what I did oh. there? Thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, to to be clear for our listeners, great content doesn't necessarily mean that it's a great experience. So it's it's right around. It's, it's how it lines itself up. Um, so it's usually going outside of one asset. But uh, but I appreciate that. You know, hopefully you enjoyed the cover. Hopefully you enjoyed you know, the way it was laid out, the way we put in you know our imagery, uh, the way how, way we help people navigate. I mean, these are some of the things we'll talk about today when we get to content experience. Yeah, and I I also, as you know, because you've seen the picture, I started reading the book on a flight from Arizona back to the uh, East Coast, and I took a picture of the book and posted it on LinkedIn as I usually always do as I'm reading a, a book leading up to an interview. And do you happen to notice that there were two small bottles of bourbon next to the... Yes. So... Uh, I, I did. I did. I, I, I always love looking at that stuff. You know, it's... it's <laughs> 
you, you never know what's photobombing a, a, a photo, uh, <laughs> even one that's intended to be you know, serious. And I, I even looked at, there was a newspaper in the back. I was, I was really intrigued. I always like to look at the surroundings. I like to see what the context was of what someone was doing when they chose, you know, to read a book or read a piece of content or engage in some sort of activity. I find it just really interesting to, to dig into those details. Yeah. So if the listeners are uh, reading your book, uh, please send a picture of it to Randy uh, in the wild, as we say. So Absolutely. I just want to read one excerpt from the book, and it's at the beginning, um, and it says, disclaimer, we love content marketers, seriously. And then you write, don't let the title of this book fool you. We love content marketing, and we love our content marketers even more. However, before you read any further, I want to be perfectly clear on a few points. This is not a book about content marketing. This is not a book about how to create great content or how to create any content for that matter. This is not a book written for content marketers, though if you are a content marketer, you'll love this book because A, we have your back, and B, it will give your organization perspective of what needs to happen after you click publish. So Randy, say more about what the the book is about and who it is for. Yeah, thanks. And I, I love that part. I mean, I loved penning that part. I love hearing it because I think that's, it, it goes to to remind content marketers how much value they add to an organization. And it hopefully will get people who are not in the content marketing role to to view content in a more strategic way. And I think that's that's something that we have to overcome with a lot of different areas within our marketing departments and you know, even outside of marketing, different parts of our organization. We often simplify what that department does. You know, that happened historically with social media, right? We got really down on social media. We started to view it as a very junior, non-strategic role, which I, I don't think it needs to be. Um, and many of us lost faith in social as something that can drive revenue. I, I'm not going to talk about social today, um, but you can tell that I, I have opinions of how it can be used more strategically. Same thing is with content. Right. You know, if you go back to Joe, who you mentioned at CMI and Robert and the others who who really helped build this focus on content marketing, they didn't say just go and create content and, you know, cross your fingers and that hope that everyone's going to buy from you. Uh, if you go into their definition, yes, it talks about creating valuable, relevant and consistent content, but it, it talks at the end about the idea of doing so to drive profitable customer action. And that's what our organizations are for. That's what marketing's there for. We're there to help support sales, help support, you know, ensuring that our solution is represented in the market that we're trying to go to market in. So the question is, how do we weave content into that? And too often we simply think about create and publish, yeah. or create and distribute versus actually we got to embed this in a meaningful way into those journeys that that our audiences are going through. Mm -hmm. So let me just get one thing out of the way here. Randy, you are the co-founder of Uberflip, which is a content experience platform. And d does the reader need to purchase a subscription to Uberflip in order to do all the stuff that's in this book? Of course they do. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. They, they do not. In fact, I, sometimes people in my own company get annoyed at how how much I, I talk about the importance of content experience versus Uberflip hand in hand. We run a big conference. I run a podcast all around content experience. And, and I very rarely within those talk about uh, Uberflip in any way. In fact, 
I would argue, even if you go beyond Uberflip, I think too often marketers rush to buy technology, right? The, oh, yeah. The, the mindset that we, we have you know, had is that, well, if I buy the tech, it'll help me solve this problem. And, and I, I'm not saying that that's incorrect always, but I think we run to it too quickly. We, we assume things are there to literally take over our jobs. And, and none of us actually want that. We don't want robots taking over the world. I mean, we're intrigued by it, but none of us want it from a career perspective. Uh, although we would like to sit back and drink a Corona and enjoy our day. The, the reality is, is that we need to leverage that technology at the right time. And let me tell you what I mean by that. I, I, I love the you know people who talk about people, process, and technology. Yes. Right? We've all seen images with the triangle and you know that's how you need to think about building your organization. What I always say within that, um, and when I say I always, I'm not the only one, uh, is that you know the first thing you should invest in under those three pillars, if you will, is people. Like you need great people in your organization, especially if you're in a disruptive, high growth type of business. Uh, great people are going to make the difference. You know, to to make sure those people are efficient, you need a great process. You know, mm -hmm. putting in a process, and we unpack one in this book called the Content Experience Framework, uh, which is very much what the book is about. Uh, is taking into account a process. Uh, the last thing that you would do is once you have great people and a great process, layer in technology. Because at some point your process and people will break. And rather than going to hire more and more people, quite often we can leverage technology to scale in, in that type of way. So that's that's how I always think of technology. Same thing would be yeah, with an Uberflip. Uh, you know, to start to put a focus on on content experience, you don't need Uberflip per se. Uh, and in the book, I, I align a lot of examples where this can be done with a spreadsheet. Yeah. Table. Yeah. And it's a, my original question was sort of like the one I asked David Cancel, co-author of Conversational Marketing. Their, their company is Drift, uh, all about chatbots. And yep. I asked him, I said, so, so do you have to buy Drift? And he was like, absolutely not. You can, and they don't talk too much about their business. I mean, neither did you, and I'm sure your sales team's upset about that, but it was, <laughs> it's, it's, it's all about the, uh, uh, you know, the, the process and, and why it's so important. And people process technology, just remember it in that order. Uh, it reminds me of a quote I saw recently that said something like, never buy a tool unless it's wrapped in a process. And that is such a simple thing to say, but I see so many companies going, running off, buying all these tools and you know, building up their tech stack, and it, they never had a process to begin with that all this technology uh, could yeah. help with. So, I couldn't agree more. Can I just pull back to one thing you said there just yeah. before that, though, that, that I think people should really give some thought to, which is this idea of leading with research or leading with thought leadership, which comes back to content marketing. As I said, I'm not anti-content marketing. I'm anti-not using that content in a meaningful way, which, which we'll continue to unpack here. But one of the things that we should remember as well, and you know, whether it's DC over at, at Drift or whether it's myself, I mean, what, what we're trying to do is ensure that people understand the space that we're in, and then we end up top of mind. So there's a stat from Gartner right now, which I always love going to. It's it's a little different than the one we usually hear. It, it says that 82% of the time done during the buying process by your audience is done doing research, right? Which mm -hmm. means only 18% is done speaking to sales. Now, that doesn't mean that they're just talking to your organization because we all know when we evaluate software, we evaluate a process that we're going to buy our service. You know, we'll look at a few different incumbents. Uh, so what, what it means is 
18% is spent speaking to sales as a whole. It's not a lot, but it means that that time is so valuable. So what we all want as organizations, we want to earn more of that 18%, right? We don't want, if there's three, we don't want 6%. We want 12% of that time. And the way very logically to earn 12% of that time is to earn more of the 82% of the time being spent, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a correlation. If we can help guide someone through their research, then very naturally, when it comes time to speaking to salespeople, they're going to go to the people that they've learned to trust. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk just a minute about content experience. So you meet somebody at a you know, out, out in the wild who's not maybe even in marketing or, or whatever, but they may have heard of, of content. What do you, what do you, how do you explain to them what content experience is? So in other words, they say content experience and they say, oh, content marketing. And you say, well, no, actually, here, here's what content experience means. Right. No, it's, it's a great question. And in fact, it's funny. I, I mean, I get thrown into sales cycles here quite often and I'll end up speaking to a CMO and, there, and there's one CMO a few months ago. I, I talk about this woman a lot and she was really bright. And, and she said to me, you know, I, I keep hearing about content experience and I think it's going to be something that we do in Q4 this year. And I, I kind of chuckled. We had a good report going, so I wasn't being disrespectful. And she's like, what's well, so funny? I said, well, you know, to suggest you're going to do it in Q4 would suggest you're not doing it now. Um, and she asked me to explain. And I said, well, it, it's, it's that idea similar to like if, if a tree falls in a forest, does it make a noise if no one's around? Of course it makes, it makes a noise, right? I mean, that, that statement is there to, to, pro, you know, to make us realize that what we do has an impact whether we put attention to it or not. So the way I think about content experience is simply anytime someone encounters your content. And so when we, as long as we have produced a blog post, an ebook, even the email content we're sending out, a video, whatever that format is that we're putting in front of people when we click publish, they're now having an experience with that. Um, now, reading it is one thing, but as we all know, let's just start by looking at one of the factors like environment. You know, is it well laid out? Is it mobile friendly, which is surprisingly still an issue these days? Uh, is there a sequence that takes me to the next piece of content in a very logical way. All these things weigh into whether do I really want to stick around and engage in this piece of content, no matter how great I heard it is. It goes through our mind whether we realize it or whether we don't. Um, and that takes us then into a whole bunch of other considerations. The two others that I talk about the most are the way we structure that content, like the organization of it. And the last one is the way we create engagement uh, with that audience. Yeah, so... I was wondering if you could explain what you mean when you say that too often B2B brands expect people to take too many steps <laughs> to find the sure. content they want. Sure. Uh, so, Doug, first, I, I know you have a, a very global audience, uh, and I'm always cognizant to not throw any references that are too American or I'm Canadian. Uh, so we have, but, but one thing I think people all know is the rise and fall of Blockbuster. Right? Yes. Um, in fact, I, I I told you I like Marvel movies. I saw Captain Marvel recently, and not no spoiler, but she drops into a blockbuster. You know, <laughs> and and it's it's a great scene. But it, oh, it, it, I it haven't reminded, seen that. But you're talking oh, about yeah, a, a place where people would go and rent you know, VHS tapes and, exactly. and, and, see, and, and DVDs. Back, back in the day, not that many days ago, uh, and. 
you know, there were so many things broken about that experience, just as there were things broken about, you know, the way we took taxis before Uber existed and, you know, the way we signed documents before uh, DocuSign existed. You know, there's all these disruptive technologies that come, but I always like to look back on like, what were the things that we were taking for granted in those moments? And you look at a blockbuster, it was broken, right? Like if we went into a blockbuster and we knew what movie we wanted in the 90s, maybe it was Apollo 13, right? Tom Hanks movie, great film. I would know that if it was a new release, I go to the left-hand side of the store. It would be under A's. It would be in the first or second column of, of movies. And assuming it was in stock, I'm good and I'm golden. But then I had to come back to get my next movie. So let's say I, I love that Tom Hanks movie. And I said to myself, you know what? Let's let's take in some more Tom Hanks right now. Blockbuster didn't line up the store for me to do that, right? They didn't have a Tom Hanks shrine. They didn't have an area for me to navigate to find it. Instead, what I had to do is I had to try and think to myself, well, what else has he been in? And where would that movie even be, right? So take as an example, Forrest Gump. You know, would that movie be in action, drama, comedy? I honestly, I don't even know the answer because there's no more blockbusters. I couldn't go fact check this. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, that, as, as silly as that sounds, that's why that model got disrupted. Yes, Netflix also allowed us to stream content at home, but they didn't do it in the same way that Blockbuster did. They said, okay, we're going to organize content based on your interests, based on your needs, based on what you're wanting to do. So after I would have watched Apollo 13, I may have been given the option to watch Armageddon with Bruce Willis or Forrest Gump. You know, like they don't know which direction I would have wanted to go next. Or you could so, put in Tom Hanks and they would say, well, here, here they all are, including Joe versus the Volcano. Exactly. As good or bad as they are. Right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so, so that is the way that we need to think about how the world has evolved. Now as marketers to, to answer your question, which was, we expect them to take too many steps. We expect marketers to navigate our website or the content we send them in the same way that we expect, we expected, sorry, I should say people to navigate a blockbuster. Right? We send them to our site and, and you know, think about this as you're listening to this podcast. If you're guilty of this, you can even navigate to your site and you probably have content organized by things like format, right? Yep. You know, all of our eBooks are on this page, our white papers are on another page, our videos, our webinars. If you're still doing infographics, they're probably on their own page. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and that's the way we publish content and create content. So that's how it gets onto our site. But when was the last time you went to someone's website and said, right, I'm going to figure out what these guys do by, you know, format of content, you know, give me some eBooks to explain what you do. No. <laughs> yeah. Like we get there and we say, help me understand my problem, my pain. How do you solve my pain? Right. So that's one example, but there's yeah. so many others. I mean, how many people still organize content in their blog by chronological date? Right. <laughs> so, Suppose SEO is working for you and you land on a great piece of content that continues to be relevant from May 15th, 2015, right? Um, and for, for clarity, because I know podcasts have a long shelf life, this was recorded in 2019, right? So, right. Uh, you know, so someone finds that post and it's still extremely relevant because it's an evergreen piece of content. You update it from time to time. It's gold. It helps bring people into your funnel. And then they say, you know what? I'm going to keep reading from these guys. This is really great content, right? And then they go and they get to what piece next? They get to the May 14th, 2015 post, which may have nothing to do with modern day approach to whatever problem you're trying to solve for them. You know, people, do, people expect you to serve the next piece of content that interests them. That's why 
to our Netflix example, they're so successful. That's why we listen to Spotify on music, Spotify music now, because they line up music that's interesting, interesting to me. Yes. And uh, you talked about just a few big, bad habits that marketers have, and you've, you've touched on it. One of them was uh, using latest versus greatest content. And see, it rhymes, Randy, so I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to remember You're that. You're on a roll. You're on a roll. Latest versus greatest content. Not a good idea. And uh, then the other one was organizing by, by content format. And then you also talk about how the marketers are just ignoring user experience. Well, what do you mean when you say that marketers are passing the buck on this? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think... I mean, whose responsibility is it? it, it it's a great question, right? And... In, in, you know, the third part of the book, we really unpack like who's supposed to own content experience in the first place. And, and I think one of the problems uh, that a lot of us assume is with job titles in organizations like content marketer, that the content marketer should be expected to do all of this stuff that we're talking about. Like not only should they focus on creating content, but they should focus on how content gets used, how it gets thrown into campaigns, how it's lined up. And not to say that they shouldn't care about that stuff, but is it is that a reasonable request of them, right? Like being that content creator is an art, right? It's it's not an easy skill. I think we undervalue those individuals very often. Uh, this is why I said at the beginning of the book that they're going to love me for this. Uh, but but doesn't necessarily mean that they have the skill to build website experiences, to uh, you know to think about the sequence of content the way a demand gen manager or email you know manager might, right? And those are the ways that we need to start to think about content, right? The example I always give Douglas is think about think about how our brains as marketers work when it comes to email. Right? Like a lot of us have bought email marketing automation platforms, tools like Marketo or Pardot, Eloqua, HubSpot, you can go on. Um, and, and we all have been trained to think very next step, right? Very choose your own adventure. If this happens, then that should happen. Mm -hmm. But that's the same thinking that we need to start to take with the way we lay out the content on our website, right? Like, you know, it shouldn't necessarily be the same thread of nine pieces of content like we've talked about. We should be mapping content either by industry, persona, or some of the things we're even starting to see, especially with the rise of account-based marketing, which I'm sure Drift would have talked about as well when you mm -hmm. when you had David on. Uh, you know, that requires us to start to personalize content down to the level of the account that we want to engage with. Yes. So... You write that no matter your go-to-market strategy, even if you don't think you prioritize content, you can't execute the way you want without accepting that content lies at the core of that strategy. And then you go on to talk about four uh, go-to-market strategies. And I was wondering if we could touch upon those because I happen to know that every episode, there is somebody who's listening who was just thrown into the marketing role, <laughs> or they yeah. just took over a company and are trying to figure out what, what they're supposed to do. And so I wanted to talk just briefly about the four that you have here, which are inbound, demand generation, account-based marketing, and uh, sales enablement. Now, you mentioned HubSpot, and you wrote that HubSpot deserves a lot of credit for popularizing the term and concept of inbound marketing for good or bad. Why do you say for good or bad? Yeah. So, uh, first off, I, I, I have 
a huge degree of admiration for HubSpot, uh, for the leadership team who's there today, who have moved on, uh, for the way they've approached content, even outside of what their business did at times, which wasn't necessarily a content machine, but they were genius about how they leveraged content. And they talked a lot about this idea of inbound. But I, I think even HubSpot at one point got straddled with that term as a suggestion that the only reason we create content is to fuel the top of our funnel. Yes, um, so and, and those, I think there was a misperception that's all you had to do. Right. I mean, even even HubSpot, I bet if they could do today, they may even rename the big inbound conference that they have that, that brings in tens of thousands of people, right? Because <laughs> the reality right. is, is that it's, it is a strategy. It is how we go to market and is a very valuable one. But when, you know, there's a lot of companies that we just talked about that, that are approaching an ABM approach. Um, and when you, when you go ABM, it's, it's not, I, I wouldn't say that it's, you do inbound or you do ABM. I actually, this is probably a whole other podcast of its own, but I think the, the two work very well together. Oh, beautifully. But yeah. This idea that, that the only place the content should be used is inbound, I think created a little, a lot of misconception in these organizations. Good. I agree. And as a longtime HubSpot user, and we use it for clients, that sort of thing, it's, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about, but it's sort of like people are, uh, there's a misperception that HubSpot misled people, which they didn't. I mean, if you use their tool now, you'll see where they, you can integrate your advertising, <clears throat> your, your paid advertising, and, and all the content that they produce and all the training that they do. Um, they're, they're very clear about, you know, what's yeah. working and the fact that things have evolved. So, Demand generation, if you could explain that, because that's a term that's used a lot, and I think that people, it means different things to different people. What does it mean to you? Yeah, I, before I do that, I mean, even just taking a step on, back on these on these four categories, we dove right into inbound there. But, you know, one of the things that, that made me realize the importance of, I guess, Trojan horsing in content experience, if you will, to, for people, was that a lot of people would say, just just like that CMO who told me, you know, Q4 is going to be when I do content experience, this idea that I'm not doing content now, or it's not part of how I go to market. And it was actually, it wasn't my own realization. It's an analyst at Forrester named Laura Ramos, who's brilliant and, and really understands the space, uh, especially from a B2B lens where a lot of her focus is. Uh, Ryan Skinner as well, who's a forester, talks a lot about this, is the idea that we have to use content in any of the strategies that we go to market with. In Laura's words, she talks about choreographing the dance steps of our audience. It's not linear. Everyone takes different paths, and we need to be there at the times when they're going to engage with us. Right. So and just, she says... Uh, choreograph the dance steps of your audience, not your sales process. It's more about the audience. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so you take that and then I, I'll pull back to your actual question here on demand generation. To me, de demand generation, yes, is about being on the channels that you're going to be able to pull people in by deploying paid programs, but it's also about creating a journey that continues to greet people. So you you threw out as an example the idea of paid advertising with HubSpot that's very capable. I, I believe one of HubSpot's partners now is a company called Terminus. Uh, Terminus yes. allows people to. I think they invested in it too. Did they? Oh, that's I didn't even know that, but very very possible. Um, so Terminus is a great. I, I know some of their founders. So full disclosure, I'm friends with them. They're they're good people. We're yeah. partners with them. Uh, and what. What Terminus does is allow you to retarget ads against 
people that you know you want to win. So from an account-based perspective, I know I want to win an account that is called Dell Computers or Apple. I can start to deploy ads against those accounts. Mm -hmm. So now the first thing we think of naturally is, well, that's a demand strategy and that's an advertising strategy. But what is our goal at the end of that? Our goal at the end of that is probably to drive them from the ad to a property that we own in a digital way, you know, or ultimately to get them on the phone or something like that. But Mm -hmm. we're probably not going to get them to pick up the phone from the ad, right? Like no one looks at the ad and says, oh, I'll call right now. Uh, (laughs) In their dreams, maybe. Yeah. What we're going to do, funny enough, is we're going to send them back to the top of the funnel, to the inbound funnel, if you will. Yeah. uh, And we're going to try and nurture them through content. So to do that, I come back to this idea of realizing the content experience at the end of the day gets embedded into all of our different strategies. Or as I said, you got to realize it's Trojan horse inside of there and it is near impossible for us to execute any type of campaign that we do without linking to content, you know, so without walking through in the same detail, email marketing, you know, how often today do you not link to a piece of content inside of that email? The content is no longer the email. The goal is to get them out of the email into some sort of threat. Same thing with social media, right? Social media, we're, we're trying to have conversations less these days, in my opinion. We're using social media as a way to engage people and get them to click on that URL, which again, takes them to a content experience. And I could go on and on, even direct mail, you're seeing this, where we open up that piece of direct mail, the call to action is to go to some sort of web page where you can learn more. Right? Yeah. It's and so even awful. though you have those four sections, <clears throat> there's still a lot of blurring between each one of those. And I don't know that people are served well by saying we're only going to do one of those four. I, I just don't see that working at all. Agreed. And, and that's where I think it, it, it's a mix of ensuring that your, your content bleeds into all of those as we choreograph the dance steps, to, to Laura's point. So from an inbound perspective, we should focus on content experience on the, on the you know, resource center on our website or the content hub or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. On the demand gen, it's you know, when someone clicks on that link, how do we keep them on that page that we get them to so that they don't consume one piece of content, but they consume seven or more? Uh, on, on, the, uh, on the ABM perspective, how do we build pages of content for the accounts that we're trying to engage? And then to your point on the fourth being sales, how do we arm, arm sales reps to actually build the same level of curated experiences as they're deeper into that sales process? And it's this one... I was an internal one that I just saw. This was about a week ago, maybe two weeks. Uh, We had our quarterly town hall here at Uberflip and our VP of sales got up and he wanted to paint for our company that's about 150 of us. He said, I want to paint for you, you know, what the day in a day in this life of a sales rep looks like. And he, he did this amazing presentation looking at a single deal that took, you know, called four to five months and the number of emails and the number of calls that happened over that period. And, and, you know, they, they really dug in to understand that, you know, there were over 700 emails. There were over 40 phone calls over that time, you know, to get that person to the point where they were ready to buy. Now, some, some sales process will be more complex or less, but now think about how many times did you send someone to content to, you know, to continue them along that journey. It pulls us back to that Gartner stat that we spoke about earlier, Douglas, which is that 82% of the time is done speaking, is done doing research, not even speaking to the sales team, which I just told you is only 18% and was over 700 emails. 
Yeah. So in the in the book, you have a, a framework for content experience, and it, it has these uh, five parts, which is centralize the content, organize the content, personalize the experience, distribute the content, and then generate the results. And I want to ask you to explain something where you say, you said, I can't tell you how many people are running to say things like, I don't have enough content to even begin to create a content experience, you know, let alone power all my go-to-market strategies that we just talked about. Why does Randy Frisch call BS on that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so if you want to see that framework as you're listening to this podcast, by the way, you can go to my own personal site, which is brand.com, b-rand, which is rand for randy.com. Uh, we've got that image there. You can also go to uberflip.com slash CE, and, we, and, it, and it'll actually pull up that framework that Douglas and I are chatting about. And I'll and include you- a link to those in your show notes, and we'll also include a picture of it too. We're gonna, we want to make this easy awesome. for people at, at marketingbookpodcast.com. Please, sorry. Yeah, and so to your point though, I mean, important thing to note, and, and I call this out in the book, that this framework in, in this book, again, is it's not about how to create content. Um, you know, it will maybe help you think about creating better content, but that's not the direct goal. The goal is how to get you to the point where you're using your content, right? And you're using it to fuel, you know, that journey that every audience member is going through, whether they're a customer, whether a prospect, uh, whether, you know, they're, they're just kind of an, a consultant on the side who's going to weigh in to that buying process. You know, there's a lot of people weighing into that sales process and we need to be able to personalize the experiences for all of them. Now, what, what happens for most of us is we just say, okay, great, I'll go personalize this for everyone. Uh, and then we run into roadblocks and we, we stumble and we realize that the scale just isn't going to work. So what this framework is, is there for is to take all the content that you've created. And most of you will not realize how much you have until yes. you do the first step. Yeah. Right? That first step is to centralize your content. Right. For most of us, our content scattered all over the place, right? It's some of it's on our website, some of it's living in an offline folder or an intranet. Some of it is, is living on channels that we don't truly own, right? Like, a, you know, YouTube is always the best example of that. And I can't stand it when sales reps or companies direct me to watch one of their videos on YouTube. I, I just don't get it. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't be on YouTube. You definitely should be on YouTube. That's where people search in some cases, but don't send them there. Yeah. Like, you know, you've battled so hard to get their attention and then you send them to a place where we all know what's on the right hand side. Well, cat videos. Yeah. Yeah. Or I always say Dora the Explorer, but, uh, you know, it's, it's something really random. Uh, yeah. and we don't even know how it's related half the time, but it's because Google's trying to figure out how to keep you on that page. Yeah, Not it's funny. To, yeah. Well, whenever we're engaging with a new client, they'll say, we don't really have any client. We don't really have any content. And then you just go and round it all up. And they're like, oh, this is what you mean? Yeah, <laughs> you've, exactly. you've got presentations, you've got speeches, you've got all kinds of information. They didn't, they didn't realize it because they're thinking it has to be, it has to be new. But centralizing yeah. the content, I mean, that's, that's a big challenge, probably even more for the for the bigger folks. And then in terms of organizing the content, it kind of goes back to the Netflix blockbuster thing where, you know, if people don't take anything else away, uh, organize it by a topic, not by the format and, and organize it by, um, well, you know, it just keep, a lot of the book kept reminding me of, you know, user experience. Think about the person that's trying to use this and what might be most helpful to them. And it just seems like even if you can do that a little bit, you're you're going to stand out from your competition. 
uh, you, you've nailed it, Douglas. Like the importance of that step around organization. I, I'm not going to lie to you. It's not the sexy part. It's not the fun part that we run into the office to do in the morning. But if we don't do that, there is no way we can personalize at scale. It's just impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things I, I often will remind marketers is how quickly we move around in our jobs. Right. So uh, it's just a reality today. I mean, very often marketers will move around in under two years, sometimes under a year. So you think about trying to remember all the content that you created. And we use my 2015 example. Most people in your team probably don't know that asset exists. So yeah. how do we how do we surface that? It comes down to proper tagging, proper audit of that content. And this is a great example where, yes, Uberflip can help you with this, but you don't need Uberflip on day one. You know, start off with something like an Excel spreadsheet or Google Sheets, whatever it is you use, and just have some simple columns that walk you through the title of the content, the persona it's for, the different tags that may be applicable, and make that, you know, publicly available to your internal team so that people can search and find the content that they're looking for. Yeah, we always want to make this difficult, but it, you, you talk about how in terms of organizing content, if you don't do anything else, you could just organize it by like persona or job title, you know, by topic, by industry, by vertical. I mean, like just just yeah. there. It's uh, you can push the limits too. I mean, you know, it's we're at the stage now. It, it, it you know, again, my day job is being CMO, so figuring out how we use our content and our go-to-market strategies. What we've started to do is actually tag content by opportunity stage. So we look at Salesforce where we have opportunities and when a deal's stuck, we want our sales reps to be able to find content that's going to help them get that that opportunity from 60% to 80% or 80 to 100 or whatever the case be. And and sometimes it's overwhelming for them just as it is for us in the marketing team to remember things, but if we can really break it down like you said by industry or by stage of the of the selling process, we can accelerate the 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 pipeline velocity. Yes. Randy, just one, one more question about the, what was in the book, and that is, is it related to um, the part about distributing content? Explain what you mean when you say you need to create an omni-channel presence for your brand. Sure. Uh, so, so the first thing is, you know, we skipped over the fun part. But that's okay. There's a lot in the book around how to personalize those experiences. And yeah. then that's what we want to do is we need to understand that people are going through their buying journey on so many different channels. What we need to do is we need to put the right content in the right time in the right place in front of them in these different channels. Um, now, what most of us do is we just tell everyone to go back to our website, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of us, we think about our website as the place we want to send people to. And I'm not saying that's a bad idea if your website is really well thought out, but there's a lot of approaches these days where people don't even want to get people to their to their main site. Um, there's a company, I actually mentioned this company in the book, but this is this is newer Intel because I, I met with their marketer probably a month ago at, at an event. You heard uh, it here first, folks. Yeah. It, so... <laughs> It's a, it's a company called Snowflake, and, and the, the customer's name is Daniel Day. Really bright guy, leads APM strategy there. And he told me recently, he said, they're now at the point where when they look at, at more of an engagement data point, so how many views of content, which they, they admit like that's not a success metric per se, mm-hmm. but they look at how many views of their content is happening. They said they're now at the point where more than 50% of the views do not happen on their www on their website. More so, they happen on 
individual streams of content that they send to accounts, right? So they're creating a destination of content for 1,200 of their target accounts last I spoke to them. And that accounts for more views than what's happening on their website. Now, you may say, well, maybe they're failing. They're now valued at over a billion dollars. Uh, you know, and, and this company didn't exist 10 years ago. So you, you look at, at how they've gone to market by realizing that it's about getting in front of the customer in a way that's personalized, that feels like we said at the beginning of this podcast, like Netflix, or the one that I love using as an example is Spotify. I think Spotify does an amazing job at making, feel, at making every one of their users feel like they've handpicked music for them. Like it literally, like you open that app, you open up the app, it says made for you, specifically made for you. And I feel that way. Like I almost feel like ACDC wrote a track for me. Granted, they don't do that. But, you know, I, I feel like when I open it up that they understand me. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of us will say things like, oh, well, that's Spotify or that's Netflix. Like I, I, I can't compete with them. Well, if you don't figure out how to do it, how do you expect them to toggle over on their phones? Like a lot of you are probably listening to this podcast on Spotify right now or Stitcher or whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as you're doing that, I guarantee, you know, it was what, this is probably a 45-minute podcast. You've probably gotten anywhere from 10 to 50 emails in that time. Right. And you're probably seeing them pop down. The only way you're going to even consider opening those while you're enjoying this podcast is if they feel as personalized as the Netflix, Spotify channels are. Mm. Right? We need to compete with those. Otherwise, how would we possibly expect someone to turn their attention away? And I would add, if you don't think you can compete with them, just get started. <laughs> Just, Absolutely. just the secret to getting ahead is getting started. Just start thinking about that and do a few things. And I, I just have a feeling that if companies would do a little bit, it's going to make them stand out. It's like so many things that we talk about on this podcast. If companies just do a little bit of it, it, re it really makes them stand out. So uh, it doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, Randy, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? That's a great question. I, I think it's it's to not put all of your emphasis on content creation, right? Um, you know, I, I keep talking about this CMO I spoke to. You know, when she said it was a Q4 initiative, her answer was, I, you know, we have to create a bit more content first. You're never going to have enough content. You'll never be done creating content. But what we have to remember is a lot of the people you're trying to attract are net new logos. And the first time they come to your site, they have no idea what was there yesterday. Yeah. Right? You know, think of them as cohorts visiting. You know, the scary stat that, that pushed me to write this book was when I saw from Serious Decisions. It said that 70% of content we create goes unused. Yes. I mean, that's it's crazy. You know, people challenge, what does that mean unused? Using it, because it's on your site doesn't mean it's used. Because as we said, it may be living on, you know, page 17 of the results if you had to keep you know, scrolling down, you know, we know on Google, we don't go beyond page one, sometimes even result one these days. So the idea of expecting people to find content because it's on our site is not enough. We need to think about how that content will be consumed because we have great content. You know, the, the example I always use is Spotify, which we've talked about a lot here. Uh, in between 2013 and 2017, really interesting stat that, uh, that Mary Meeker from Kleiner Perkins highlighted in, in her internet trends report a couple of years ago, which was 
what happened was they went from us listening on average on a daily basis or monthly basis, rather 68 artists to 112 artists over a four year period. And a lot of people say, well, like, how did they do that? Like, you know, we can all joke about the reality that there's not better music over that period. You could argue it's worse, right? (laughs) And we don't, you know, we don't continue to listen to the crappy new stuff that comes out. We replace that with other new stuff. So we're not listening to more artists over time for that reason. We were doing so because Spotify started to introduce us to content we didn't even know mattered to us, right? Music that, you know, we didn't know that we would enjoy. And that's how you have to think. Like, to your point, Douglas, like, start somewhere. Start to try and put something that you know is great in front of your audience that they would not have found otherwise. Yes, yes. So, Randy, this next question, I I always ask the, the guests on the show. But before I ask this question, I want to read an excerpt from page 29 where you said, it's probably not a great thing to say to start off a book. But here's the truth. I'm not the biggest book guy. Like many readers, I don't finish many of the books I start. Every now and then, though, I pick up a book that I can't put down. Then, once when I'm done with it, I immediately set out to find someone else I can pass the book along to so it can change their life as well. I loved that. The question is, what books have inspired your working career? That's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, the, I, so I had that in mind when I, when I wrote the book. Uh, I wanted to write a book that would have that type of applicability, which meant in some ways as you read this book, it, it, won't, it will give you some frameworks, but it won't go into the, into the weeds in some cases. Mm-hmm. Because this, is, this book is one that you'll probably want to pass on to someone else in your team and say, you know what, this, you, know, you may want to take a look at this. It could change the way we think about growth in our organization or how we build relationships with customers or how we you know, drive demand at a, at a higher level. And, and to me, a book that I read along the way was The Hard Thing About Hard, hard Things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great business book. Um, it, it takes you through the trials and tribulations of, of an organization and, and what happened there. And as, as I was reading through that book, I felt like I could relate to things that I had gone through and I felt the pain. And I could also see forward to some things that I was going to encounter. And I saw that as something that not only did I have to read, but my you know CFO had to read, my COO had to read, et cetera. Um, same thing with this book, I hope. Um, whether it's the marketer picking it up, who's the CMO, you know, hand it to your team. If it's the, you know, marketing specialist, push it in a way that your CMO wants to take a look. And to a degree, you could argue that, you know, people on your success team, sales team, and even CEO will want to think more about the way we're building relationships through content with our customers. Absolutely. And one of the other takeaways from the book was for people, whoever reads it, to maybe occasionally say something like, what is it we're actually trying to accomplish with this content? You know, even from a granular, so because you opened the talk about our discussion about how to create more content, create more content. And I think if more folks would say, okay, let, let's just think for a minute, what, what else are we trying to accomplish? What happens beyond this content and, and what's the context? That would be uh, really helpful. Absolutely. Are there any recent or upcoming books you have heard of or you recommend or looking forward to reading? Uh, that's a great question. You know, I, I think you hit one. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of great marketing books right now that have come out. Uh, you know, there's one by some of the team at Demand Base at all. 
demand base as well. Sorry, Jessica Fulis there was involved in a book on ABM to help you understand that. You touched on David Cancel's book on conversational marketing. We're actually doing a fun program in the fall with them with like a, a marketer's book club of sorts. So we should try and get you behind that, Douglas. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Definitely I'll, have, have a reach. Uh, I'll have to provide everybody with the uh, Marketing Book Podcast uh, laptop stickers. There you go. I like <laughs> it. I like it. We'll slide that in uh, to the direct mail package that we do. Yeah. And we got bookmarks too. So, hey, you know. That's terrific, yeah. And uh, I, I've been, I'm been uh, interested in that book that you just mentioned. I'm, I've been uh, trying to get in touch with those folks because I think that would be uh, very popular with the listeners. But, Randy, how best can listeners learn more about you and uh, the new book? Sure. I, I mean, I, the channel I'm probably most active on is personally is is LinkedIn. I mm-hmm. think it's a great uh, way to connect with audiences and and share thoughts through video, which I do, you know, on on a regular basis. Uh, if you want to check out uh, places I'm speaking. Uh, again, it was b-rand.com. There's a link to the book there. Uh, there's you know ways to see some of the content I've written over time. And if you want to learn more about Uberflip, uh, honestly, start start with the process, like we said. Go to uberflip.com slash CE, which is content experience. There's a downloadable version of that framework we talked about, mm. as well as you know more content to help you understand how to approach content from a more strategic way, not in how we create it, but how we use it in our organization. Yes, and we're going to include links to your sites, the ones you've mentioned, your LinkedIn profile. Heck, we'll even throw in Twitter, no extra charge. And and <laughs> we're going to link to all the books that you've mentioned on your episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com so that <clears throat> listeners can find what we've been talking about. But also, I hope that they'll reach out to you and connect with you on LinkedIn and, and thank you for being a guest. Listeners, there's over a half million podcasts out there, and uh, Randy can't be on all of them, and he <laughs> he elected to join us here. So please thank him for, for being a guest. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on uh, the show notes link. The name of the book is Fuck Content Marketing. Focus on content experience to drive demand, revenue, and relationships. The author is Randy Frisch. Randy, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Douglas. This has been a blast. Really fun talking to you about content experience and uh, appreciate you embracing the fuck right out of the gate. (laughs) That's great. Thank you. And that closes the book on episode 232 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan, visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Brad McDonald to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, The Art and Skill of Sales Psychology, Why Buyers and Sellers Do What They Do. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Amanda Harrison. This was great uh, and and really well-run podcast. I appreciate all the research you did. Uh, Oh, thanks. All I do is read the books. (laughs) Nice, nice. Well, not everyone actually does that. So, you know, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Well, I don't always drink when I'm reading them. And actually, (laughs) in fairness to you and the audience, 
I didn't drink that bourbon until after I was finished reading the book. Very nice. Very on that nice. particular flight. <laughs> but I did drink the bourbon. Nice. Good stuff. <laughs> okay.